are listening to a podcast from The National. We're well into the new year, but 2018 so far, perhaps this isn't surprising given that it's only January, we still feel like we're dealing with a lot of the big themes and topics that remain somewhat unresolved from last year. One of those is the evolution of the energy sector, especially related to climate change, how the Paris Agreement is going to take shape, particularly in light of Donald Trump's stance of how America's involvement should be. We begin a very big month in Abu Dhabi itself when it comes to that. Uh, We had the UAE Energy Forum, which kicked off on Thursday in Abu Dhabi. That builds into the Atlantic Council meeting. And then we have the International Renewable Energy Agency meeting on Saturday, which then presages Abu Dhabi's Sustainability Week, which gets fully into gear with the World Future Energy Summit. So the next 10 days promises to be a period of discussion, debate, and perhaps revelation on where we are in terms of the future of energy. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi. This is the Business Extra podcast coming to you from the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. Down at the UAE Energy Forum, I spoke to Lord Adair Turner. He just took on a new role at the Energy Transitions Commission. He's their chairman, but he has a very varied background, very interesting CV that includes 10 years ago taking on the top financial regulatory role in the UK the same week the Lehman Brothers collapsed. Lord Adair, it's lovely to meet you today. Thank you for being able to talk to us. Um, You've got a fascinating background and uh, I'm going to pick your brain on sort of green energy and sustainability in a moment, but I wanted to sort of go back to uh, one of the biggest elements in your experience, which was when you were leading the regulator in the city of London. And interestingly, you joined um, in the first week uh, when Lehman Brothers then collapsed. collapsed. Exactly. So um, as as far as first months in the job go, uh, how was that? Well, it was the most extreme first month you could imagine. I actually became head of the Financial Services Authority on uh, Saturday, September the 20th, 2008. It was five days after Lehman Brothers had collapsed, AIG had collapsed, and it was sort of uh, two weeks before we had to call in all of the UK banks and tell them that we were going to part-nationalise some of them and provide liquidity support, etc. So it's like sort of... I, I sometimes say it's like being appointed captain of the Titanic after you've hit the iceberg but before you've actually sunk you know the whole the whole place is collapsing it was however absolutely fascinating uh, you know to be there at that time seeing the entire global financial system seizing up and uh, you know i was working with some very high quality people both the staff of the fsa and also closely with mervyn king the governor of the bank of england and uh, uh, alistair darling the chancellor of the exchequer and we always knew that we had the tools to stop it being a disaster in the UK and, of course, with, with, with colleagues around the world, in, in the US, in France, in Germany, uh, everywhere. Um, but it was an enormous crisis and it has cast a huge long shadow over the um, global economy. And really you could say that it looks like 2018 is going to be the first year that feels like 
we're really getting out of it. Which is quite extraordinary. It means that this thing had an aftershadow of sort of nine months of pretty poor global... Nine years, sorry, of pretty poor global economic experience. So as well as at the time we had to sort out the crisis, it's also incredibly important um, that we work out why that crisis occurs and make sure it doesn't happen again because it's, uh, it's cost a lot to the global economy. Uh, going the other way and, and looking back to when you took on the job in 2008, uh, given your background in financial services and uh, your experience and le- leading up to it, while it was a crisis and many things caught us by surprise, the direction that we had been heading in perhaps was not a surprise. So what motivates you to then take on this role um, within the, the regulator in the City of London, given everything that had built up to that point? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, 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 they asked me whether I would apply for the role. I'd done some other public jobs. It was a big, um, important role. I have to say, I had no, no idea we were about to end up in a complete crisis. Indeed, this sounds a very you know, sort of odd little story, but uh, about a month before I took over the role, I'd been appointed three months before, about a month be over, I actually said to my wife that it, although I was going to find it interesting job, uh, I you know, a little bit regretted that I'd missed the really exciting points of the previous year. Because by summer 2008, a lot of people, including me wrongly, thought that the financial system had gone through some major upsets, that various hedge funds had collapsed, various things called sieves and conduits had collapsed. In the UK, our bank, Northern Rock, had collapsed. I thought in summer 2008 that my job was going to be part of the mop-up operation. I had no idea that the crisis was about to just sort of become yet more severe. It's interesting because you always feel like, oh, that's it. It can't get worse. That's the bottom. And then then you really hit the bottom. Um, and um, in terms of, of the experience at the time, uh, and I saw your writings afterwards, um, you, you, you talk about sort of the fictional world of, of the financial services industry. Um, uh, is, is that an accurate quote? Yeah, yes. Look, I, I, another quote was that I said that a lot of what went on before the crisis was socially useless. I, I think in the 10 years before the crisis, um, finance just sort of got disconnected from the real economy. We, we created all these complex securitized instruments, CDOs, CDPOs, CDO squared. Lots of clever people created all these derivatives, traded these derivatives. We traded things backwards and forwards. And at the time, a lot of people in the industry, but also academic economists, told a story that all this sort of activity had somehow made the global economy more efficient and indeed safer and lower risk because it had sliced up risk and distributed it. And in retrospect, it was all nonsense. I mean, the world economy did not need a lot of this activity. Uh, It involved the dedication of a lot of high-talent people to producing some instruments that really added nothing positive but created a lot of risk because they were so complex that people couldn't understand them so complicated that they couldn't be effectively managed so complicated that essentially they were used of techniques for selling people instruments that you know they didn't understand uh, which is you know a form of mis-selling so 
I'm, you know, quite uh, aggressive about what happened to the financial system before the crisis. What I've also tried to set out in a book I've written called Between Death and the Devil is, is the still deeper story of how we got in the mess of 2008, which I think is a story of rising leverage across the, uh, the real economy, uh, not just over the previous 10 years before 2008, but really over the previous 50 years. And those are lessons we still need to learn, with, you know, and that's what worries me about the present situation we've only been able to get out of the crisis of 2008 and the aftermath of it by sustained very low interest rates. I think that was the right policy, but those sustained very low interest rates encourage people to take on leverage and risk, which endangers that we go through this cycle all over again. So I think we've done some things that have made the financial system more resilient and stronger than it was before 2008. But I think there are still some unresolved problems about instabilities in the global economy. Is, is the sort of boom-bust cycle and this, this obsession or addiction with um, leveraged trading, leverage investment part of human nature? I mean, it feels like something that'd be very difficult to get rid of. Oh, it is very difficult to get rid of it. I mean, some of the great books was written, there's a great book by Charles Kindleberger about manias and crashes and panics, uh, which is about hundreds of years in which people you know, decide that, you know, Dutch tulips should be worth, you know, enormous amounts of money and they speculate and they trade these things. Uh, so the world has been full of centuries of uh, financial crises. I think what happened in 2008 is that it just got so large that it had a macroeconomic effect. It wasn't just that something went up and something went down. I mean, for instance, we're seeing it again with Bitcoin. I mean, this is a speculative bubble, uh, let's be clear. I mean, the, the value of Bitcoin is whatever you think the value of Bitcoin should be. It has no uh, natural value uh, at all. And some people are going to make a lot of money and some people are going to lose a lot of money. The good news is that Bitcoin in total is small enough relative to the whole economy that if they lose a whole load of money, it won't crash the, the global economy. What happened in 2008 was that the speculation was in property and property-related credit securities, and then you're dealing with numbers which are very, very big relative to the size of the global economy. So crashes, um, crazy ideas, booms, busts, they can always create a problem uh, for particular people. Um, where they become a problem for the global economy is if the total scale of them and the interconnectedness with the core of the banking system is so great that when the bubble bursts, you know, down comes the global economy. Your new role as chair of the Energy Transition Commission, I find this a fascinating move. Um, to, to, to look at the context, um, during your time uh, as a regulator in the city and, and what we were talking about just now, um, there was also a kind of uh, a, a equivalent boom and bust in green energy. Um, when the oil price was very high in 2008, it had a, a sort of a, a knock-on effect of encouraging more investment in solar and other renewables and government subsidies, etc. And since then, some of that has deflated. Yet, are we coming back to a point now where the economic argument for you know sustainable energy green energy these kind of uh, initiatives is coming back the ups and downs of things like solar pv manufacturing 
that's just inevitable. Look, whenever you have a new disruptive technology, and in particular a technology which is getting cheaper and cheaper over time, you will have cycles where some people make a lot of money and some people lose a lot of money. Uh, The railways in late 19th century Britain and America absolutely transformed the economies. So did uh, the ships, steamships across the Atlantic. But there were people who went bankrupt in that. So, you know, that is capitalism. It has this creative destruction. If you strip out from beyond these cycles, what is happening on renewable energy, and this is great news for the world, is that it's coming down in price far faster than I dared dream 10 years ago. I got at first involved in issues to do with climate change and energy about 10 years ago. And if you told me then that the price of solar photovoltaic electricity was going to come down 90% in 10 years... I I would have been amazed. But that's what's happened. Uh, And it's still going down. And I think it's going to halve again within the next three or four years. And so this is immensely good because ultimately all our energy comes from the sun. I mean, fossil fuel energy is just stored energy from millions of years ago. Um, I think the future of energy by the time we get to the late 21st century is all renewable, of which the core is is the sun, because the the sun beams down on us every day about 5,000 times as much energy as we need to run our entire economy. So we just need to capture a trivial proportion of it in a completely green fashion. So I think it's a a great optimistic long-term story. The challenge is the transition. The challenge is we start with a whole load of economies which are dependent and which have a whole load of capital stock, you know, machinery, cars, which can only run on coal and gas and oil. And so it's going to take a long time for us to transition out of it. But we have to transition out of it. And the technologies are increasingly there that should give us the confidence that at the end of that transition, we will be just as prosperous as we were at the beginning. There's been talk about how much uh, sort of current conventional energy needs to be replaced by clean energy. I, th- I sort of figure some 100 gigawatts needs to be replaced. Um, and in the past, the conversation had been uh, uh, sort of who's going to pay for it? Where's the investment going to come from for this transition? But now where the popularity of, for example, electric vehicles, um, clean mobility, where technology is coming with the, the sharing economy, it's the conversation now seems to be, and particularly in the context of the Paris Climate Agreement, more about opportunity opportunity more about sort of what we can we can actually achieve through this is that what you've been seeing Look, there is an a, a enormous opportunity it will take time let's take electric vehicles i am very convinced that the future of light duty vehicles cars vans is electric it could be electric with batteries or it could be electric with a hydrogen fuel tank and a fuel cell but i think the future engine is electric because it's just a much more efficient engine than an internal combustion engine and it's much less polluting. I mean, London, I hope to live long enough to see uh, a London with primarily electric cars, because it's just going to be so much nicer to sit at a street-side cafe with electric cars going by and producing nothing but a bit of, uh, you know, water vapour than it is with the noise and pollution of the present uh, uh, system. So, there are huge opportunities. There are opportunities for business. There are opportunities for a cleaner environment, both in a local sense and in a global sense. But it will take time to get there. Right today, there are a billion cars on the road and only two million of them are electric. 
and because people buy cars and they last 10 years, even once the technology becomes the technology of choice at the level of new sales, it's still a couple of decades before the existing stock has turned over. That's actually one of the reasons why we have to get on with it quickly, because it necessarily takes time for the new flow to turn into new stock. We've got to start early, and that's why I think it's important to begin this transaction. But in 2030, the majority of cars will still be internal combustion engine cars because a lot of them will be cars which people have already bought. I think between 20, I think what we'll see between 2020 and 2030 is a very big shift in the proportion of new cars which are electric rather than uh, internal combustion engine, with electric maybe dominating by the end of the 2020s. And then in the 2030s, you'll see that affecting the stock of cars. Uh, and by 2040, a significant portion of the stock of cars, I think, will be electric. Uh, talking to you and, and hearing everything that you're saying, and it's been a journey for you for the last decade in this particular area. Um, but I, what I find encouraging is sometimes we are told that, you know, all these new developments and technologies are a, a kind of millennials game, a young person's game. You're somebody with vast experience that is actually helping to lead this. And it, can you also say that it's not just you, that there's a whole generation of people who have done other things before that are now coming to, to these kind of areas? I, well, I think it's an interesting point. I think you're absolutely right that I think a lot of young people get it more. I think most young people are concerned about the climate. They're very open to new technologies. For instance, we were just in a workshop earlier on debating are the young people of the future, certainly in, in dense populated cities, are they going to buy a car? Or are they going to say, well, that's a somewhat odd thing that my parents and grandparents did, but it's really a bit old-fashioned. Why, in the middle of London, would I want to buy a car? Um, so, Attitudes do change, but I think it's incredibly important for people to stay young by continually reinventing their own uh, intellectual understandings and beliefs. And I think there are a lot of senior people in senior roles in government, in uh, academia and in business who are also very aware of the need uh, for, uh, for us to take action on climate change. Actually, one of the things that happens is you get a bit older and you think, you know, you've got children and you think you might have grandchildren. You do begin to think about the world that they inherit. Um, and so that does produce a, a, a belief that we've got to deal with this problem. Lord Adair, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much indeed. Nice talking to you. More business extra in just a moment. But first, allow me to tell you about The National's other podcasts. Beyond the Headlines takes a deeper dive into the biggest news from the week with a distinct Middle Eastern point of view. And Extra Time from our esteemed sports desk is the best place to chat about the English Premier League and more. Subscribe to both shows as well as this one on Apple Podcasts or find us as always at thenational.ae. Now, I'm looking into the energy sector, particularly in light of what 2018 promises to be a landmark year. There's a lot of different themes going on from where demand's coming from in terms of electric vehicles and some of the newer forms of transport. Also, where for oil now? What's going to happen this year with OPEC, with the oil price? But overall, we're saying this transition going on. And what will that transition look like? I was very lucky down at the UAE Energy Forum to speak to Chris Midgley, who's just joined S&P Global Platts as their global content director of analytics. However, he has a long history in the energy sector and comes with very, very interesting points of view on a range of subjects related to that, particularly in light of the big month 
uh, that we're having for future energy and sustainability. Uh, Chris Midgley from S&P Global Platts. It's great to talk to you because uh, we're at the beginning of a, a long week uh, where we'll be focused on energy in the capital. Um, and uh, it's a good time to have these discussions at the start of the year, perhaps. Um, last year, uh, with all the big themes that were going on globally around energy, around climate change, um, it felt like there was a lot of discussion. But perhaps we didn't see a lot about you know how the the energy industry itself was operating. I mean, what, what's your view of the last sort of twelve to eighteen months? Well, one of the things I talk about the last twelve to eighteen months is the big theme has been what I call consumer hedonism. The fact that we are consuming more energy today and growing our energy demand at a faster rate than we have ever before. Low energy prices has driven consumerization uh, at, at phenomenal rates. People are buying larger vehicles, SUV sales in the US are 80% of, uh, of sales, second-hand car lots are full of small cars and hybrid vehicles. So if you look at the real theme that we've had over the last 18, 24 months, it is that consumer hedonism. Putting it in perspective, you know, 2014, when we, we had the, the crash in, and 15, the crash of oil prices, was really caused because we saw oil demand growing at just 600,000 barrels a day. The last three years, it's been growing at one, over 1.5 million barrels a day. A completely different world where, where we're expecting. And this year, we'll see demand go over 100 million barrels a day for the first time. And that's a number that some commentators going back maybe five or ten years thought we would never go over at all or certainly not until the mid-2020s. So here we are above 100,000 barrels a day and that is I think a huge uh, shift um, and I think something that people aren't talking about nearly as, uh, as much as they should be. You've got three decades in the industry, 20 years of that in Shell, particularly in trading. Um, you talk about unprecedented levels of demand that we perhaps didn't see. But in all your time in the industry, we've, people have been talking about peak oil and that we're going to hit peak oil. doesn't look like it, does it? Yes, I think peak oil came and, uh, and went as a, a theme. And now we're talking about peak demand. Um, now, will that not be another fad? Actually, I think peak demand is a far more... Um, sensible conversation to be having because there is no shortage of energy in the world. There's no shortage of abundance of sun in the sky. So we're not going to run out of energy. And I think you know, that, that conversation has matured and moved on. Now it's really about peak demand. Um, I think peak demand from an oil perspective, of course, because demand for energy is going to grow and grow. If we want to bring people out of poverty, and we've heard Xi Jinping talk about 43 million people coming out of poverty in the next three years in China alone, you need more energy. The question is, does that energy need to come from fossil fuels? And certainly, I think for oil, you can start seeing a world where we find ways with which to decarbonize the transport sector. Um, now, I don't think it's all about electric vehicles. Again, a lot of hype in the, in the media about electric vehicles and the growth of them. They're growing at phenomenal rates, but they're still a tiny slither of total sales of, of cars um, out of the total 90 million that are sold every, uh, every year. So, you know, for me, I think it's going to be now about talking about a uh, mosaic of solutions which enables us to move a little bit more away from fossil fuels and, and move to alternative sources of energy to, to drive this thirst for uh, dem energy demand growth. 
Now, we, everyone talks about climate change. They talk about environmental reasons. Uh, Ten years ago, when there was a real focus on renewable sources of energy, it was because oil was so expensive and it became viable. What are the drivers now that, that economically they're going to push both the energy companies and consumers towards these sort of less carbon orientated energies, if, if even that, there may be something else? Look, I, I think people have stopped trying to deny the climate debate. Um, you know, certainly we know that the global planet is warming up. We have more uh, climate events that are occurring. So I think it's moved away from that and a recognition that we need to use our energy in a more uh, responsible manner. And how we go about doing that, I think, uh, is is going to be the uh, the question. Uh, and 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 so the debate now is 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 more about how do we use the different energy sources in a more responsible manner. Uh, some of it will be about decarbonisation through electrification, but of course, electrification is only good as if you if you can decarbonise the production of the electric electricity itself. Uh, we've seen, you know, and we've heard today at the, the conference here that uh, the cost of solar and wind has come down. Solar is 10% of the cost of what it was, wind 25% of the cost it was. And all of that's making it compete. But it doesn't enable us overnight to shift to the whole world being renewable energy. It's still, you know, we're talking 2-3% of energy coming from renewables. So we still need to use that carbon as, res- as responsibly as we can. And most of the benefits that we're going to see over the next 5-10 years is going to come from the fact that we're going to have much more efficient engines, much more you know, we're going to see lights changing to LED, all the ways in which we can use energy uh, in a much more efficient way I think is going to be one of the other areas we need to focus on along with how do you then progress solar, uh, wind and other intermittent sources and integrate that into our energy systems. We're in Abu Dhabi, uh, the centre of one of the biggest oil producers in the world. Um, it's fascinating. I always find how very early on they wanted to take a lead role in the evolution of, of energy sources. From your point of view, having come from one of the big energy companies around the world and now at one of the global um, providers of information on the energy industry, how do you view that role that the likes of the UAE is taking? Well, I think the UAE recognises that number one is that you know it is a privileged position with the energy and cheap energy source that it has, um, and it will should continue to find ways to develop that energy in the most uh, efficient and low cost manner that it, it it can, uh, because as I said, energy is a source of bringing people out of out of poverty, but at the same it's also using the wealth that's being generated to good purpose to also develop the new technologies of the future. We've heard them talking about going much more into the chemicals supply chain and plastics will play a significant role in helping to lightweight the cars and uh, in, and buildings that we have uh, and, and so that will be a source of helping us to decarbonise. So I think, you know, it's not the end of oil, and you know this this you know alarmism as as you mentioned earlier about peak oil. That's not there. We'll still need a lot of oil. We're over 100 uh, uh, million barrels a day today, so we still need new oil to be delivered uh, to, to be developed and delivered uh, to the uh, the economy. But at the same time, countries like uh, Abu Dhabi, like uh, Saudi Arabia, with its Vision 2030, are also now thinking about how you also balance the revenue uh, and into other sources of energy which are, are more renewable uh, and have a sort of a longer term, you know, 100 year type horizon, um, you know, viable sort of out, um, way of continuing to, to generate revenue for the economies. 
Chris Midgley, great talking to you. Thank you. This has been the Business Extra podcast. That was an episode on energy, the future, sustainability, you name it, covered a variety of topics. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi. We hope you join us again next week. Until then, take care.